Well, we're going to have our main Bible reading now, which is uh, Romans 15 and 16. But we're picking Romans up where we left off last week at Romans 15, verse 14. So, uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 14, all the way to the end, says this. <coughs> Paul writes, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, but I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the powers of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Elycrium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore... I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected. I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Kensaria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life. To whom not only I give thanks, but all the church of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epeonatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampelatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Eubanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachicus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. 
greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphania and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Philegon, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So does Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Quartus, greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forever more through Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, do keep, do keep that text open. We're going to be looking at that uh, together. Just to say there's an outline of where we're going in the service sheet. So do make use of that if you would like to. Some people like to make notes as they go through. And at the end of the message, there'll be an opportunity for any questions or comments. So if there's anything that's been said you'd like me to clarify or ask further about or explore an implication, then do be thinking about that as we go through. And um, I'll explain how that will work when we get there. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity now to look at your word together. As your people, please would you help us to listen to it, to trust it, and to obey it. And we ask this, that you might be seen amongst us as the God who is truthful, good, and rightly sovereign over us. Amen. Well, it's the start of a new term for many of us. And it's a time when many people think about the term ahead and what it might bring for them and what they might like to achieve. And so in the spirit of a new term, we're going to at least start by thinking about the place as Christians of evangelism. Now, many Christians will be familiar with the idea of doing evangelism. I mean, evangelism is simply somebody who knows the gospel telling somebody who doesn't. But the question is, why do evangelism? What motivates us 
in our evangelism. Now, I suspect that the answer, if we were to go around, will be pretty diverse and will depend uh, a bit on what church background we come from. So, in some churches, uh, what might be stressed is the Great Commission. Go and make disciples, says Jesus. This is a command, not a suggestion. And it's the last command, a commission. And therefore, we better do it because we've been told to do it. For others... Uh, it's a kind of picture of the lostness of the world, um, which in a mission context is often presented in pretty graphic terms, either in terms of looking at the effects of uh, sin in people's lives now, or the ultimate consequences of sin as people go to hell. And what we need then is men and women who see the need. And they will act to try and save as many people from hell as possible. Sometimes it's presented as opportunities. So if you are a university student, you might be told that university provides some of the best opportunities uh, that you will ever have to share the gospel with others. Because after university, people will have jobs and families They'll be too busy, to be too tired, too stuck in their ways to listen to what you've got to say. So you have the best opportunities now, students, so make the most of them. Or if you're a worker, you might be told that the workplace often provides some great opportunities for sharing the gospel with people who might never come into contact with a Christian. You have great opportunities to live the Christian life in full view of your work colleagues, which actually brings credibility to what you then say. And so make the most of such opportunities, we're told. So there are a whole range of different reasons that in many ways reflect the different church backgrounds that we come from. Now, whilst they have some legitimacy, not one of these motives is majored on in evangelism and mission in the Bible. And it's today that we finish our studies in the book of Romans. We're taking a look at Romans 15, 16. And as we go through, we will have a think about what contribution uh, this text might make to this uh, question of motivation for evangelism and the advance of the gospel. And we'll come back to it at the end. Now, it's in Romans 15 that we learn about Paul's purpose for writing uh, his letter. So, um, have a look. Let's pick it up from Romans 15, 22. Let me read again. It says this. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have no longer, I have no longer, since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul is um, intending to travel to Spain, okay? And he wants their support um, as he makes a stop-off in Rome. Okay, that's the, that's the picture. Now, before we go any further... It's just worth observing that even the idea that Paul might have a purpose in writing the book of Romans 
can be a surprise to some because there can be a tendency, particularly with the book of Romans, that somehow this is Paul's generic work. It sort of transcends any context on the ground. It's just Paul's general writings about the gospel. But the occasion of the letter was actually one that we first met back in Romans chapter 1. It was there uh, that we learnt that the Christians in Rome may have thought that Paul was ashamed of the gospel. And that the reason that he had not yet come to Rome, which was the capital of Greek sophistication and thought, was because he was avoiding the place. And Paul was quick to reassure them that he wasn't ashamed of the gospel, but that he had legitimate reasons for being prevented from going to Rome thus far. But now, now we learn that, um, well, now we learn that whilst his visit to Rome is fast impending, Rome is not to be more than a stop-off on his way to his ultimate destination, Spain. Verse 24. And so one of his main purposes in writing Romans is the need to get help from the Romans for his projected Spanish mission. Why is he going to Spain? Well, it's because he has exhausted all the other regions thus far. Have a look back at verse 18. Verse 18, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around Eliquium, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So Paul claims that he has brought to completion in these different regions his apostolic task of advancing the gospel. Now in the past, he was hindered in, in going to Rome because he was concentrating on fulfilling the gospel from Jerusalem all the way to Eliquium. But now that's complete. And now he's pushing on to new ground to Spain. Now, back in Romans 1, we saw how Paul orientated himself, how he thought about himself. And he orientated himself around the gospel, the gospel about the Son. It was the gospel that was promised, and it was the gospel that had now arrived, for the Son had come. Paul orientated himself as one who had been called by this enthroned king to be a herald of this gospel. That is to say, Paul locates himself with respect to salvation history and with the coming of the Son, it's now all tied to the proclamation of the gospel. And it's what we're seeing worked out here in Romans 15. But if all this were true, why is Paul prepared to risk it all to go first to Jerusalem. Chapter 15, verse 25. At present, however, 
I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. If Paul's mission is all tied to the advance of the gospel, why is he going to Jerusalem to bring relief of poverty? And it's a risky business, one that Paul is well aware of, and one he asks for prayer for, verse 30. I mean, he's concerned that he might come to harm from unbelievers, and he's concerned that the gift that he's going to, intending to take may not actually be welcome, verse 31. The significance of this trip is not simply charitable, but theological. Back in Romans 11, Paul used the metaphor of an olive tree. The tree represented Israel that God had planted. It doesn't fulfill its purpose, so God breaks off branches and grafts in the nations. So this olive tree is Israel, but it's full of Gentiles. And Paul brought to bear both the kindness of God and the severity of God for the Gentile Christians. The kindness of God and that he has grafted in, us into this tree by his grace. And we rely on the patriarchs and the promises given to them. The severity of God, well, that's for there's no place for pride and arrogance, but really to see ourselves as part of a much bigger plan, a plan for the whole of humanity. So there's a sense then in which the spiritual blessings of the new age belong especially to the Jewish Christians. And the Gentile Christians should acknowledge and give thanks for their sharing of these blessings with them. And it's by serving the Jewish Christians with material things that the Gentiles can express their sense of indebtedness and thanksgiving. So with Paul wanting support from Rome for his mission to Spain, Paul doesn't simply frame that trip within his own mission, but within the mission of God. Whilst one might say, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, Paul sees all Christians as servants of the one God. Sure, Paul planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the growth. That is to say that Paul is tied up with God's plan and not the other way around. There is only one people of God made of both Jew and Gentile. And there is only one plan for all the nations of the world. So what we're seeing, again, worked out here in Romans 15, is the unity of God's plan of redemption. Well, Paul's letter ends with a series of greetings in Romans 16. And every one of these topics is found in one or more of the concluding sections of Paul's other letters. Except that Paul treats two of these matters quite differently than he does anywhere else. So in no other letter 
does Paul even come close to the number of personal greetings that he conveys in verses 3 to 15? And in no other letter does he launch so suddenly in the midst of concluding greetings into a substantial warning about false teachers. Now, with regard to the first observation, the scope of the greetings is quite staggering. Paul commands that the church in Rome greet on his behalf 26 individuals, two families and three house churches. Now, this may well reflect Paul's desire to mention all the Christians in Rome he knows. He doesn't want to leave anyone out. And actually, this would be impossible in other letters that he wrote to churches where he had actually ministered and knew them all. But the large number of greetings may also have had a role in Paul's strategy in Rome. Because it's clear that Paul wants to secure a welcome for himself when he comes to visit the church and seek support for this Spanish mission. And his request for all these greetings, well, they probably would have been read aloud in the assembly of the church. And as the whole church heard them, well, that would encourage them to think favourably of him and remind the church as a whole of the number of supporters that Paul already had among them. And it contributes to this picture that Paul was not a lone ranger kind of missionary. At every point in his ministry, Paul depended on a significant number of others who were working along with him. Now, with regard to the second observation, let's read again from verse 17 of chapter 16. So he says this, uh, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, identifying these false teachers is almost impossible. And that's because Paul is concerned to characterize them rather than to say who they are. Uh, So they're divisive, self-centered, persuasive, teaching what is contrary to the gospel, and must therefore be avoided at all costs. And so it seems likely that the false teachers had not yet come to Rome. Paul's purpose is not to get the Roman Christians to exercise church discipline against them. Paul's purpose is to put them on their guard against such teachers who might make their way to Rome. Now this is very instructive for us. Because Paul's warning shows us what he considers is of first importance. For what you warn about is the thing you care about. What does it matter that you lose? Well, to lose the gospel, says Paul, is to lose what this phase of redemptive history is all about.
Well, we began by thinking about what is it that motivates us in gospel ministry and evangelism. And we observed that there might be a number of different things, depending at least in some part on our church background. But the thing that the Bible majors on when it comes to motivation and mission and evangelism is the knowledge that this phase of redemptive history, the one that we're living in now, is all about the proclamation of the gospel. God, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, has revealed the climax of redemptive history. The gospel has now been revealed, and its proclamation is what this phase of redemptive history is all about. In other words, the motivation is really nothing less than a change in mindset. You know, rather than think that we've got all, uh, you know, rather than think we've got our lives to live, and we've got all these things that we need to do, and therefore we need a reason to do evangelism. Well, actually, the default for a Christian is a life that is bound up with the proclamation of the gospel, a life that is bound up with well, the great privilege of pursuing the advance of the gospel to the glory of God. Well, let me pray, and I'll open it up to any questions or comments you might have. Heavenly Father, as we think about this uh, new term ahead and what we think we might want to be doing and what we might want to achieve, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect on the ministry of Paul and the ministry of the church in Rome. And we pray, please, that you'd help us to share uh, the mindset of uh, your apostle, that he would understand with the coming of your son and his enthronement that the gospel has now been revealed, the repentance for the forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed to the whole world. We thank you, Father, for the great privilege of being involved in the advance of your gospel and that that is what this phase is all about. We thank you for the many opportunities that we'll have this term. And we pray, please, that we would think on these things and that we would be rightly motivated um, to be uh, faithful servants um, of you and your son. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, questions or comments? The way this works... On YouTube, you used to type your answers in. No longer. You actually have to be brave. Stick a hand up and ask. Um, if you do have a question or a comment, you don't want to do it publicly, you can just grab me um, or Tom at the end. But uh, there have been extraordinarily fruitful times to have at least two or three questions now just to kind of get the um, further thoughts going and we can continue those discussions over the church picnic and beyond. So a question might be about something in the text that I've not mentioned or to clarify something, explore an implication. Might not be anything, might be lots. Yeah, sure. Um, so just for the recording, the question is, in the introduction I mentioned a number of different motivations for evangelism. How do they um, fit together with this idea of um, Paul's proclamation of the gospel? That's what... They, he, that's his sort of mindset. 
Yeah, I mean, it's been an interesting one because I think ever since I became a Christian, um, I, you, know, you think about this thing about why am I doing evangelism? Like everyone knows that evangelism is something that we ought to be doing. Um, but the question is, why? Um, and I remember reading a, uh, you might have heard of Hudson Taylor, just by example, who was a missionary in China. And in um, a biography of his book, he painted this really graphic picture of basically the lost millions who were going into hell. And that's what took him to China, basically the plight of so many um, in a country that never had the gospel. He was concerned for their spiritual well-being. And that was the thing that took him over there. He was just interested in saving souls, as many souls as possible. That was the kind of the, um, what was going on. And you read some of that, and you think, oh, OK, that, that sounds reasonable. You know, I care about people. I care that, that what happens to them, what their eternal um, future will be. And therefore, actually, in hearing the gospel, they can repent and receive the forgiveness of their sins, and therefore um, be in a new heaven and new earth. You just think... But then raise the question, well, whilst, whilst there's some legitimacy to that, I mean, obviously, that's not, that's not wrong it does raise the issue, well, what does the Bible, how does the Bible motivate us? What, what, what does it say? And if we, if we were to say, well, why should I be doing this? Um, that's the kind of question that uh, I'm asking with. And so, the, uh, I mean, another one would be, you know, some people just say, we do it because Jesus told me to. It's to go and make disciples or whatever. But it's just interesting when you actually drill down into the, the Bible, how the Bible talks about it. And it seems to me that the way the Bible presents it is not by just giving any one individual reason. It's not saying, look, go and tell people the gospel to try and save as many people as possible. And actually, we would probably think, hmm, I'm not even sure I'm thinking quite in that picture because actually, you know, there is an elect. And actually, our confidence in the success of evangelism is that the elect will be saved. So I'm not so much about trying to save as many people as possible in it kind of, it's all down to me, but that actually God will save his people through the proclamation of the gospel. But actually, when you drill down into it, the way the Bible seems to present the motivation for evangelism is this change in mindset, which really, um, basically, we have to rethink everything because our starting point tends to be, I've got all these things I need to do, I've got my you know, job, I've got my family, I've got my house, I've got leisure activities. And there's this evangelism thing, I need to try and make out some time to do it. And the question is, why are you going to do that rather than work a bit more or you know, paint another room in your house or whatever? So I've just been painting rooms in my house, so I'm just thinking, I'm not doing any more painting, I've had it. Um, that's where we come about it. Whereas the way that the Bible seems to put it together is, is that as a Christian we become servants of the enthroned king. And therefore, what he's about, we're about. And the plan of God now, well, Jesus died, he's risen. God's plan now is about the proclamation of the gospel, uh, calling for repentance, forgiveness of sins. That, that's the program. That's, that's just what it's, it's about. And so the assumption is that, the, that we're just on board with that. So, you, know, you could even be a bit naughty and just say, actually, we think we, you know, the onus might be on some, you know, the evangelist to say, let me give you reasons to come and do evangelism with me. Whereas the Bible would tend to put it more like, 
you, then this is a new way to do anything else. If you sort of see what I mean, it's, it's a, actually we'd, we just adopt new priorities and we share the priorities of, of God and his risen king. Um, so I think it's not to say any of those reasons at the start are wrong in themselves, but it's just not really the way the Bible puts it together. It's actually we, um, we share the priorities of the kingdom, and, and that is the advancement of the gospel. So it's just, it's just what we're about as his people. Um, and we see us. Does that? Um, so I think probably the big thing I'm saying here is that it's, the Bible presents our motivation for gospel ministry is more as a change of mindset rather than, let me give you three reasons why you should do evangelism. You know, uh, save the lost because God tells you to, um, because, because you know, you've got lots of opportunities in your present circumstances. It's, 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 it's kind of actually stepping back and thinking, what's God's program for the world? Which I think why Luke 24 is so helpful, because there it set out, Christ died, Christ rose, the gospel's proclaimed, and those two things have happened. So this is, this is the activity. Um, now, that's not it, worth just saying, and I think um, I put on the children's sheets in terms of the... Well, it's interesting, because I think I, I was a little bit thinking, like, oh, should I put why do evangelism or why do gospel ministry? And I don't think... I'm not wanting to say, as soon as you go out of here, you need to start doing evangelism and you should do it all. It, it, it's not that. And actually, in many ways, where we do evangelism is as a church. You know, we, we're a team. We, we, we work together and we've got different gifts. So in that sense, it's not like you just need to start doing more. But that how do we orientate ourselves? How do we think about ourselves as God's people? And, and we ought to be thinking about ourselves as, as those people who are tied up with the events of the gospel in Bradford. That's, that's who we are. And you know, how we work that out, you know, we, there's only a number of ways, but it's, it's, it's that kind of, this is, this is how I'm thinking about everything I do rather than do more evangelism. <laughs> because that, I, I think do more evangelism is probably what you get more from the, um, those little reasons at the start. You know, basically try and save a few more souls from hell. You know, whereas the mindset is, is a is a mindset. So okay, um, Nathan. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, I think very much so. Let me just re- repeat the question for the recording. So fifteen twenty, um, Paul says he makes it his his ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it's written, those who have never uh, been told of him will see, and those who never, uh, who never heard will understand. I mean, is, I mean, you make a few observations. I mean, it's interesting that the, Paul can be characterised as not only like a lone ranger, but he's all about evangelism, evangelism, evangelism. But when you read the book of Acts, it's just not the case at all. And actually, you see, if you trace out the missionary journeys, he actually goes back to those churches. Uh, I think the text says, strengthening, encouraging believers. Um, and uh, often appointing elders uh, to care for the church and guard them against um, the, pros- the, uh, the danger of false teachers. So Paul isn't just, it's all about evangelism. Paul's about planting 
churches that will last and that will grow to maturity. Um, but nevertheless, yeah, Paul is an apostle, capital A, and to him has been given this uh, unique task of breaking boundaries. You know, he's, he's a boundary breaker to the nations of the world. And so when he, when, I think I said, like, he's exhausted gospel ministry from Jerusalem to Elikrium. That's not because everyone's become a Christian. It's just that his, his work of, of, of church planting in these unreached areas has been reached, and now he's pushing on to new grounds. Um, and, yeah, in the world we live in, we, we're recipients of that. You know, the gospel has gone to nations of the world. I mean, interesting, with Rome, he's not saying to Rome, you know, send people to other places. He's just saying, look, in, in the God-given task I've been given, uh, would you support me in that, that I may then uh, uh, reach uh, Spain? So, yeah, I do think you're right with Paul. Um, I mean, I think we can learn, I suppose, yeah, we wanna, on the one hand, we want to say Paul's got a unique apostolic task of being the apostle to the Gentiles, at the same time, we can learn from his mindset. And elsewhere, he says, imitate me in terms of how is he thinking about what he's doing. And as, as you know, as chatting with Hannah, he, he has this mindset. You know, he sees his whole, um, the whole church is tied up with the proclamation of the gospel. And therefore, he's about that. But he can encourage the church in Rome about that. And we can look in and learn from that and adopt that same mindset. So... Josh. Um, I'll try and be succinct. Uh, That's right. I think as, as you've been talking, I guess, um, so I'm maybe familiar with kind of the critically. Yeah. Yes. Um, I smile because I remember um, a similar question being asked when I was uh, training at Proc Trust, and the guy at the front said, I would like to uh, strangle the person who said, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And someone at the back shouted out, if necessary, use hands, which is quite funny. But um, uh, So it's a very helpful question, um, Josh, because it, it, it really drills down into what is the gospel? What actually is God doing in the world? Because if you take the phrase preach the gospel, if necessary, use words, it suggests that you can preach the gospel without using words. And raise the question, can you preach the gospel without using words? What is the gospel? And it's a funny one, because this is... Um, the students have done... Um, have had to really think this through, because, you know, with their... You know, they're basically a missionary um, evangelistic club, you know, at the university... And you know, they've just come to realise there's no more important question than what is the gospel? And which is kind of what Paul's saying. The warning is, watch out for people who are going to distort the gospel, take you away from the gospel. Um, and actually, if we're going to be um, faithful in our evangelism and gospel ministry, we, we need to know the gospel. So, I mean, it's just, it's, just, it's just a fundamental question. And it's always a bit worrying when you just think, oh, gosh, why don't people know... You know, why aren't we clear on this? Because it's just so basic. So, I mean, uh, I don't know. I mean, there's lots of places we could go. I was going to go to, um, let me go to a place that we 
often go to in Corinthians. Oh, let's forget where it is. Oh, here we go, 15. 1 Corinthians 15. Um, let me just read um, 15.1. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you have been saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that... Christ died for sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and so on. So, um, one of the things we've done with the students is just initially just observe the words that he uses in verses 1 and 2 about the gospel, because he says, it's the gospel I preached to you, which you received if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. And then verse 3, I delivered that which I received. And so the Bible, when it talks about the gospel, is, is talking about um, something which has been received, been delivered, been preached. It's a message. And Paul goes on in verse 3 and 4 to say what it is. A first importance, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared um, to many of the believers. Um, so it's, it's about Christ died for sins. It's about he rose again. And all of this is in accordance with the scriptures. In other words, Paul sees the gospel as a fulfillment of that which is promised. And this is why things like, and God makes himself known, we're keen to go back to the scriptures in order that therefore when we present Jesus as died for sins, that that, that has a context that makes sense. So... I think we have to say that the gospel is a message that needs to be learnt by us and then faithfully delivered and understood by others so that they can believe it. Um, so, and that's why, for example, the students, they've been learning the gospel. They've learnt two ways to live. So if I ask Nathan or Ben, what's the gospel? You know, they, can, they can come and draw six pictures and say, this is, this is the gospel. Um, so... I think um, that's something to be very clear about, that the gospel is a message. And it's not even Paul's message. It's something that he's, been, he's received from God and that he then faithfully passes on. And therefore, the test of our evangelism is faithfulness in the gospel. So I think that's probably the first thing I say. Then, in terms of... Well, this is the thing, because I guess... In terms of the authenticity, I think it goes back to Hannah's question and about this idea of a change of mindset. Because actually, I think what, what, what people should expect from us is integrity. That we should be, we're not hypocrites. You know, we don't say one thing and do something else. So that when we, they look at our lives, they actually see a coherence and integrity. You know, we, we, we live out that which we believe. You know, we speak of a God who is holy, and therefore we are holy. We speak of a God who loves his creation. I mean, we lo in that sort of... Um, so I don't think the Wild Bell puts it together that says, look, if you're going to do the gospel, you need to do the gospel and do these other things, and if you get the balance right, and if you sort of get the right sort of program, people will be, you know, um, I'll say manipulated, that's a bit pejorative, 
you know, you're, if you get the formula right, you'll be successful. Actually, the Bible calls us to um, uh, uh, proclaim the gospel, which is a message about Christ and his death and resurrection, but that we do that as, as Christians, as, as, as his people, and all that that entails. You know, so all the rest that you know, we've been looking at in the rest of Romans, of submission to authorities, to offering our bodies as, as living sacrifices, to loving one another, to relating rightly to all of that. And people will see that, and then that will be, um, that will adorn the gospel. That makes it um, attractive. But the thing is, all of that stuff is not the gospel. The gospel is the message. I mean, I'll tell you another story, and I'll stop talking. The, um, and this is another story that was told. Um, Thomas probably heard it. You all probably have, actually, because I've told it before. But there was uh, one guy, it was a, um, a student, and he had a house with non-Christians, and so he was living the Christian life, you know, just being a really godly man. And eventually somebody noticed, someone in the, um, in the flat, non-Christian, said to him, I've noticed something different about you. At this point, his um, pulse quickened, you know, his short of breath. This is, this is they're going to ask me about a Christian. And they say, yeah, I've noticed something about you. You're not the same as everybody else. And there was a pause. Um, are you a vegetarian? Um, and you just can't. You, interestingly, we um, had some Bible, Bible studies at um, um, Morrison's headquarters, and the CEO at the time, uh, was a Christian. And he came to some of the studies that Tom and I were running. And he found that very interesting because people, because he's obviously a very successful businessman, uh, people always asked him, what, what's the trick? What, what makes you tick? You know, what is your special diet? How do you sort of do it? And they're the questions people are asking. I never really get asked about, um, like we had a street party last night. Nobody asked me about Christianity. They never do. Ask me about anything but Christianity. And so at the end of the day, if we're not sharing the gospel, we're not doing gospel ministry. You, know, you can live, you can live, um, you can live a life, but actually unless we speak, that isn't actually gospel ministry. So I think that's the kind of the distinction um, to be clear about. I don't know, I thought I'd kind of rabbit it on a bit. Does that... I think so. I think so because people will people will spot people will spot spot a hypocrite, and actually that's probably what they look for because they the assumption for us is that we're just moral people. They assume the gospel. They just think we we think that we're moral people, so they will look for where we fail. But I think even if we when we fail, they can still observe an authentic Christian life. Because what do we do when we um, something when we sin? We, know we ask for forgiveness, there's reconciliation, the people looking into that. So we're not, it's not like when we do something wrong that we necessarily undermine the message because part of our message is we've fallen and we need a forgiveness of sins. So I think, I think it's that rather than a kind of a, there's this package, there's this, if you, know, if you get the formula, you know, you'll have successful evangelistic events. And I think that authentic Christian life will just be as varied as we are in terms of the different circumstances and relationships we're in. Cool. All right, we'll leave it there.